0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories small windows into vast universes it's season five of the cosmic library available soon wherever you go for podcasts
1: welcome to the maris review i'm maris kreisman and i am so delighted to be joined today by Sanjana Sathian, a Paul and Daisy Soros fellow. She's a 2019 graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She's worked as a reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco with nonfiction bylines for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Food and Wine, The Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle, and more. And her debut novel is just such a joy and it's called Gold Diggers. Welcome. Thank you, Maris, nice to be here. Sanjana, I. I I love that very much towards the beginning of the the novel. We are kind of going along with this adolescent boy named Neil, who lives in the Atlanta suburbs. And um, his sister Prachi and his neighbor Anitha are competing in (laughs) the Miss Teen India Georgia pageant, which is just the name alone is 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 really evocative and amazing. Um, but the he he believes that the major question around this beauty pageant is what does it mean to bo- be both Indian and like American, and it's so trite. And he's had to like watch all of these young women try to say something profound about that. But Sanjana, it's still profound. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's it's a good moment. I remember in college being taught, like at some point a, a book teaches you how to read it. Um, and people have been noticing that moment as, as sort of um, uh, the commentary upon itself, I think correctly. Um, it's frustrating as a like, kid of a child of immigrants um, as a South Asian American to find everyone around you obsessed with identity and also find yourself obsessed with identity and try to get out of that obsession and then also find yourself always writing back into that obsession. So the book, whether I like it or not,
1: is about that question in a lot of ways. And it's funny because I was just talking to Melissa Thibos was on recently and we talked about... The standards of beauty that we know are entirely effed up in America, and how we all know it in our heads, but in our hearts, it's 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 something different to grapple with. And it sounds like, yeah, for for second generation, I mean, and immigrants from anywhere, I, I assume that that's just how can you not? It's your it's who you are. Yeah, I
2: remember listening to that episode and thinking there was something important that you two got into about the difference between intellectually understanding something and having like emotional textures to it. And I think, you know, that's true when you're trying to understand race and gender and sexuality, um, you you have these external labels and often they don't fit very well. And you have to, if you're writing fiction you have to try and explore um, the nooks and crannies behind that.
1: And so explore you did, and I just, I'm trying to think of the best way to um, get into the, I might, you might have to just explain the concept of um, the title gold digging and um, what it means for Neil to be a gold digger. Sure. Um,
2: Well, the title has a bunch of different meanings. Yes. Uh, uh, At one point, you know, one character is a woman um, who is kind of living apart from her husband, but her husband is very successful and she's called a gold digger. There is a literal gold digger um, in this cutaway to the California gold rush. But Neil, as you say, is the narrator of the book and he's the heart and soul of the book. And when we meet him at the start, he's a 15 year old kind of underachieving semi-slacker in a very competitive and claustrophobic Asian-American suburb. Um, And just when he sort of feels like he's burning out, he's just not gonna make it and live up to the standards of his community. He discovers that the girl next door, who he's kind of deeply in love with, um, has been stealing gold with her mom, and uh, the two of them kind of make this magical elixir, uh, drink it, and and when they drink it, they are able to steal the ambitions of other people in their community. So it's kind of a literalization of what I often saw happening in my community, just a lot of, like, elbows being thrown, everyone kind of cannibalizing um, each other's opportunities, um, knowing there were supposedly limited seats at the table available for Indians and people of color.
1: R8 is a fine jewelry brand founded by women for women. Pieces range from classic to statement to completely original. R8 makes the jewelry you've always wanted but could never find. R8's gold feels substantial and the diamonds sparkle and shine. Such high quality and so beautiful. Because R8 sells directly to you without the middleman markup, they can offer the same quality as traditional Fifth Avenue brands at a fraction of the cost. Ethically sourced and sustainably made, their gold is never mined and their gemstones and diamonds are also certified conflict-free. R8 is looking to set the standard for women because they deserve the best, always reminding them to set the gold bar high. For 15% off your first Orate purchase, go to oratenewyork.com slash MarisReview and use promo code MarisReview. That's A-U-R-A-T-E newyork.com slash MarisReview. And also believing, and this is something I've been grappling with. I'm in my 40s. I don't know what's wrong with me, but um, the, the idea that there are different kinds of ambition beyond. Academic and professional.
2: Yeah, that's I mean that's core to the first half of the book, um, and then in the second half, the questions of ambition become like get a good marriage and get a good mortgage and and settle in in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the book as well, we you talk about the pressure to perform for people who've crossed oceans for you, quote unquote. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, I mean I think growing up, I had a sense of like the first generation's collective narrative. Um, uh, You know, Neil's parents are constantly telling him they crossed oceans and Mm -hmm. this is what it was like back home. And I do think a lot of like first generation immigrant literature that I grew up reading took that really seriously and was very somber and, um, you know, respected its elders. And I'm glad that that's how some people related to those stories, but it's not how I related because I think there's a construction happening there. Um, You know, Salman Rushdie wrote about uh, this idea that we're always writing about the India of the mind once the act of migration has already happened. And that's what the first generation is doing They're They're telling the second generation a story of sacrifice, um, some of which is very true, some of which is highly exaggerated and putting the pressure on the second generation to uh, perform accordingly. And so sometimes, um, you know, growing up, I felt like it was it was my job to almost prove my parents right um, and prove that, okay, they came to America for opportunity. I'll give you opportunity. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so the book is really concerned with the second generation condition rather than that first generation, like what happens right after you cross the ocean. This is 15 years later.
1: (laughs) There's a part in your book that's so wonderful that it was excerpted in the, um, galley letter, but it really gets to some of the stories that we are all used to hearing about what the immigrant experience is like. Um, Neil is uh, in his English class, and Ms. Rabinowitz <laughs> has decided to um, really look at the issue, um, this is 2006, so post 9-11, and you write through these pieces. We learned that old people looking out windows symbolized nostalgia for their former nations. That seems like a trope, huh? <laughs> it's
2: funny because in my at my second event, my my friend, the novelist Andrew Ridker, was like, "Okay, let's close read the book the way Ms. Rubinowitz would." And wouldn't she say like gold equals ambition? Like, is she right? Is she not? Which opened this really interesting question of um, how inadequate yet necessary symbol and metaphor is for us to understand anything. You know, uh, the the book is about both how that's true and also not true. And that's what's wonderful about novels, I think, if you can try to hold that bothness.
1: Having those two thoughts in your mind at once is, is really important, especially when, I mean, gold is at the center of this entire novel. And it's, I mean, From the story of King Midas, we we have learned many things about what gold represents. Tell me about both using those associations and also making it new or spinning it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was fun to do research for this book because I looked into um, basically like two sort of categories of gold history. I looked at the histories of alchemy, which you know was this endeavor to make gold from scratch, and I looked at that in India, in China, and in Europe, um, and then I also looked into the California Gold Rush. Um, but one thing that you know I've been talking a lot about research with people who've read the book. But but one thing I think is important to note is like I already had this contemporary story about gold theft, um, so I started with just the very material. Um, gold is everywhere in Indian houses. Like I'm wearing gold earrings right now, and the reason Indians have so much gold um, is that it's, it's cheaper there, but also like Indian gold is pretty high quality and it's just unvarnished. Like the fact that it can survive so much and that it is so cost prohibitive to make has just made it this metal that like, it doesn't need symbolic stuff thrust upon it because it already captures the imagination. And so it was enough to just say, there's a shiny thing. My characters are going to want to steal that. (laughs) And then I dug back, you know, and I discovered that After I already had this kind of conceit that they were gonna drink gold and they were gonna steal ambition, I learned that this was kind of an idea that people who have cared about gold for centuries have had that um, in this metal there are qualities and properties that if you imbibe will change you. Um, It was really fascinating to come upon um, tantric alchemy texts that I was able to use as like epigraphs because they were so on the nose. And I was like, oh, maybe I kind of reinvented like a Vedic ritual. And then of course, as you say, we have these like morality stories like the King Midas tale Um, and then the gold rush, which isn't, it's, it's it's history, but there's morality stories in there too. When you learn about the way that America has mythologized the gold rush but it turns out it was kind of just a chronicle of greed. Um, so there's there was so much, there was plenty and richness to work with naturally. Absolutely,
1: and then I love that you take that chronicle of greed and you superimpose it on the Bay Area now. Yeah, you always hear that
2: phrase, the Silic- Silicon Valley is the new gold rush. And it's, I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same sort of um, rhyming history uh, of people being called out West in hopes of, trying something new. And so the second half of the novel goes there. Uh, it goes where a lot of ambitious Asian immigrants go um, to the new frontier.
1: Tell me a little bit more about community. Cause I, I, I feel like I know in my own community and many others, there is a real sense of everyone knows what everyone is doing. Everyone has opinions about what everyone's doing. Gossip is a kind of currency in in Neil's family's life, I would say, yes, that's very accurate. Um, I mean,
2: it's been it's interesting to see uh, to imagine this landing, this book landing in the hands of some of the people it gently satirizes, um, because it's you know it is kind of the story of a community in like a loving way. Um, it's a story of that I think captures a collective experience of a lot of Indian Americans, certainly not the collective experience, but um, it's it's about what it means for a community to sort of like settle on one dream and to decide, hey, there's one thing we all care about and it's the Ivy League and then a good job and then a nice marriage and just like settle down and prove that you're properly American and just be, be here, just settle down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the ridiculousness of what happens when everyone decides that that one dream is the only thing worth searching for. Um, but it's it's also, I mean, it's about what people do to each other in pursuit of that dream. Um, and so, you know, community is both like the only thing these characters have to make them feel safe and community also poisons them because, It's not just claustrophobic. It's not just keeping up with the Joneses. It's like a restricted imagination. It's a restricted idea of like what America and adulthood and just like being can be.
1: And certainly they are located in the beginning of the book in a um, Atlanta suburb where they manage to be cut off from a lot of the other culture. Yeah, yeah. This is how subcultures are formed. Suburbs are good for that. yes absolutely and one of the things that i really loved about the book and, and and there's a real trajectory in it is what neil's interests actually are if if you strip away what he's supposed to want and his like in innate horniness which you know <laughs> that's <laughs> that, that's there but storytelling um he starts out maybe not loving debate, but loving the feeling that debate gives him. And then he studies history. And you have a lot uh, to say about what history might be or what it can do. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. Well, I kind of, to bring it back to that question that you quoted from the silly pageant at the start. I mean, when I was growing up, that question, what does it mean to be both Indian American and American? It was boiled down to really, I think like ridiculous material things like, oh my God, it's okay to eat samosas at school. Um, or something maybe a little deeper, like being bilingual. That's a little realer, but all of these things felt deeply superficial to me and they feel deeply superficial to Neil. Um, uh, deeply superficial, that's a funny phrasing. They feel superficial to Neil. Um, but. When he goes to California, he finds the answer that I found when I moved to California in my early 20s, which is actually history gives us a lot more to work with than like the shallow present. Um, Neil starts to learn about the fact that, you know, we think of the Indian diaspora as forming after 1965 when this ban on Asians emigrating to the US was lifted. But actually, there were a lot of Asians and South Asians who emigrated many of them undocumented um, before 1965 um, and particularly before 1917. And so Neil sinks into this history of, hey, maybe we weren't always, we didn't look like this quote unquote model minority diaspora where everything was about being a good engineer or a doctor. Um, He learns uh, in fact about kind of working class Indians who emigrated earlier. And specifically, he becomes really compelled by this story that I found myself in a German travelog uploaded in the Library of Congress
1: archive. Incredible. Um, I mean that the if you have a note about it in the research in the back. And uh, wow, keep going. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. No, it, it is it is incredible. I get so excited when I talk about it. I mean, I already had this story I was writing about Indians stealing gold, and I started reading about the gold rush, and I found this story of um, a German traveler in the California gold rush came upon this man who he just identified as the Hindu. Um, And uh, it was really dark. It was this story basically of a quasi-lynch mob where um, these white people encountered this brown man. They learned that he was theoretically from, from India. Hard to know if that's true. And uh, they accused him of stealing gold and they sort of formed this like vigilante justice uh, squad, held a trial, decided uh, he was guilty and, and tried to kill him. And um, I became really obsessed with this story, just wondering, okay, what, what could have happened to that man? And my first idea was, I want this to be like one of the ancestors of the characters in my book. And like, They'll go back in time and realize that like they trace it all back to there. And that's where the gold ritual came from. And I could not for the life of me figure out how to do that because I couldn't find more stories of this man. And I needed a little more in order to make it up. And so in the second half of the book, you know, Neil encounters that in the first half when he's just a teenager at a public library. And in the second half of the book, when Neil becomes more obsessed with it, I actually just gave him a lot of my own frustrations. He's a PhD student um, trying to make this his dissertation and it's not going to work because there's not enough material. And so he ends up kind of trying to write into that void instead of, you know, actually, instead of me actually having to like make up the 60 page chunk, um, which maybe I was just being lazy. I didn't want to do the work of historical fiction, but it was cool to give him all of the kind of, emotions that I had associated with realizing I just wouldn't ever find myself in American history as fully as some people will. And I wanted to.
1: And it's so lovely that Neil has to write fiction to do so. And yes, and you do too. Yes. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about mental health. When in the middle of all this, you know, one of the things that I really identify with about Neil, and there there isn't like a ton, but he's an obsessive, and um, I very much relate to that. And he's not driven in the prescribed ways, especially for the community, but he's he's got his own drives. Yeah. Yeah. And that,
2: that harms him at first. It's also what saves him later. Um, When he's in high school, he's in this context where having an inner life is actually really bad for you um, because it gives you feelings. It gives you stuff to get hung up on. It means that it can, you know, you can be distracted from being just the single-minded high achiever that you really need to be in order to beat out all the other Indians and Asians who are all competing for the same spots. Um, but this, this does mean that, you know, there's, there's, there's a loss at the center of the story that you know about that we shouldn't spoil nope. for people, but things kind of swirl around. Um, uh, this, this question that the characters, um, like what, what was it all for? What is all that striving for? Um, Do we prepare young people for the possibility that hard work may not be enough, Um, that maybe on the other side of hard work, you have to have something more waiting for you? Um, Maybe it's love, maybe it's values, I don't know. But I didn't have a great sense of what that uh, kind of end point uh, would be. I, I believed that everything would be okay if I got into a fancy school. And then I got into a fancy school and everything was definitely not okay.
1: Yeah, um, it's kind of like and... <laughs> um, the end of a Shakespeare comedy, right? It's like it's a marriage and then what? <laughs> yes, yes,
2: exactly. And, and I mean, truly that's the, and that's why marriage is the second, kind of okay. the, the subject of the second half of the book. Um, but later when all of Neil's friends are, and his family members are obsessed with, you know, having the best job in tech, Uh, He realizes that the inner life that he has had all along, um, it's still kind of inconvenient because it's inconvenient in capitalism, but it, it actually does seem to protect him from the questions of purposelessness that are like facing everyone else he knows. Um, And that's very much my own arc. Um, It was, it was not great to be a reader in my teens. And then in adulthood, I realized that having this relationship to art and thoughts um, was like it was giving giving me spiritual direction in a way that some people
1: didn't have. Oh, that's lovely. Let's let's switch gears a little bit and tell me a little bit more about how you developed the idea that um, Neil and Anitha would and um, Anitha's mother Anjali would would be drinking um, gold lemonade like I was the was it a milkshake at first like I want to hear everything about like what you think the actual physical experience of drinking that gold mixture was like
2: um I have to say it's one of those things that just came to me pretty fully formed um I don't really totally know where I got it from um I knew that I was interested in writing about a mother and a daughter who were gold thieves because there, there were gold thefts in the suburbs of Atlanta where I grew up and they were always targeting Indian families. And so I, I had that picture. And I think I remember being like, I don't really want to write about them stealing just for money. There's something else going on. And I carried that question around in my head for maybe a couple of months. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I think they're going to drink it. And then I think half a beat later, I realized what they were going to drink it for. Um, it just, it just, it just, came all together that way. And um, it, it became lemonade because it just reminded me of, of like champagne, but like a kind of evil champagne, like a stolen champagne that was like just a slightly darker hue and you could see people celebrating over their spoils, but it would, it would have, there would be something bad beneath the gildedness.
1: And then I, I love that at first, so Neil gets to enter this world that Anita and her mother are already familiar with. And we see him low key start to succeed more. And I feel like in the film version of this, there would be like a montage. There'd be like one song and we just see Neil grow and grow. I think, I think my question is, tell me about the idea of seeing your book as as a tv show or film
2: yeah so it it has been optioned um by mindy kelling's production company killing international and um i'm getting to co-write the adaptation so i'm gonna be involved amazing yeah it's really exciting we're really early um we're just interviewing showrunners um and uh as according to everything I understand, there are a million steps that go (laughs) into this. So obviously I hope that we get to turn it into a show mostly because, you know, it's a first person novel, but I'm a vomit drafter and I wrote from a lot of different perspectives. I wrote Anita's world. I wrote Anjali, her mom. I wrote these other characters. Um, and there's stuff that I couldn't put in the book because of the limitations of a first person novel. And so there's just a lot more world to play with, which is going to be cool. And I, I love the idea. There's nothing more flattering than the idea that you might gather other artists in a room and they'll help you think more about these characters who you thought you only lived within your own head. Like that's, totally magical. Um, So I'm so excited about what could be ahead if we do get to move to the next stage and the next stage.
1: That's great. And yes, the best time to talk about this is right now (laughs) when when it's all hope. And um, I will be hoping for you too. It'll be a good learning experience either way. Absolutely. Before I ask you what you've been reading lately, I wonder if there are other books and and this if you don't have an, uh, an answer ready that's that's totally fine because i'm putting you on the spot if there are other books that have helped you explore the what does it mean to be american and something else yeah definitely no that's a great question um
2: the book that exploded everything about this question for me was The Buddha of Suburbia by Hanif Qureshi, um, which people my age seem not to have read very, very often, but um, it came out in like 1990. It's about a bisexual, biracial, like half Indian, half British teenager growing up in the suburbs of London. It is so irreverent, so funny. Um, but also like a highly political novel about class and race and like a criticism of Thatcher-era England. Um, And he's Croatia is able to do what he does in terms of the sort of political dimensions of the work because he's so playful and snarky with his main character, Kareem Amir. Um, And so that that novel was really important to me. Um, White Teeth I read in college um, and just also, I was like, I didn't know you could do this. I also thought a lot about Ruth Ozeki and Michael Chabon, um, uh, who, you know, in a way have written their own community too. Um, And then American Woman by Susan Choi. Um, Also Roth. I mean, Roth, just like, I started reading Roth really late, like mid, like, like at the start of grad school, I don't think I had read Roth. And then like, I read, you know, three books in a row and was like, this is what a novel should be and is. And like, it was like he had already shaped me before I had even gotten there because American literature was shaped mm-hmm. by him. And, you know, I remember reading American Pastoral and being like, I get it. Like this, this is what I want a novel to be. And no one has um, given voice to and also criticized and lovingly lampooned his own community better. And like, that's what I wanted
1: to do in this book. I love that. And, and so now if you have book recommendations to spare, please. Yes,
2: for sure. So um, I, I'm gonna recommend three books that haven't come out yet, if that's okay. Um, later this year, um, a short story collection called After Parties by Anthony, Anthony Vyas-Nasso is coming out. Um, Anthony and I uh, had sort of just started to become friends. We were both um, Soros fellows and unfortunately he passed away. December um, and I've been thinking about him a lot on tour because we had talked about like doing events together and because I remember reading his work and my first feeling was I'm so jealous Um, and then my second feeling was I'm so glad this exists because it made me feel like I could try more things. His stories are Um, sharp, and funny, and irreverent, and also, like, really human, and it's just hard to hold all of those things at once, and his work did that, so I hope people read that. Um, uh, Two of my friends also have books coming out next spring, and I I got to read both of them in early stage, and they were, they just came out, like, perfect and fully formed. Um, One is called All This Could Be Different by Sarah Think Matthews. It's coming out with Viking next year, and it's a sort of community coming of age story about a bunch of 20-somethings trying to make it in Milwaukee. And it's a queer love story. It's also like this really cutting critique of capitalism that isn't really loud about hating capitalism, but kind of unravels that. And the final one I'll blast is uh, my friend Lee Cole's novel. Um, It's called Groundkeeping, also coming out in 2022 with Knopf. And it follows a Uh, groundskeeper on the campus of a small southern Kentucky college who has an affair with the visiting writer-in-residence and it's juicy it's a love story but it's also this like really beautiful meditation on art and it reminds me a lot of like Elif Batuman's The Idiot Um, and it also gets you into like Trump's America in the way that everyone kind of wants to understand it but not heavy-handedly at
1: all. (laughs) Amazing! Thank you so much, Sanjana. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.